Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. This is Space the Nation, and I want to share that I am feeling a strange sense of hope tinged with like worry, suspicion, and dread. Sort of like how Holden might feel when he heard Naomi's voice on the emergency broadcast. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And I think to think I'm pretty tough, but I am also quite confident that I would not survive 30 seconds in the vacuum of space. Science says you might. (laughs) (laughs) I will note that the uh, show creators got a lot of pushback on the whole Naomi floats through a hard vacuum thing. Um, Everyone's suspicious, but you know what? It makes for a good story. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, agreed. Uh, And and indeed, we we see that story play out in this episode, conveniently titled Hard Vacuum. I was going to say, Dan, do you you want to tell us the story of this episode? Would you like to take us through a recap? (laughs) I would be delighted to take us through a recap uh, because a lot happens in this episode and just about everyone we wanted to see is in fact in this episode. We will start first on Earth uh, with a subplot I will describe as Breaking Baltimore, in which uh, Amos and Clarissa uh, are trying to make their way to Baltimore. They stop at what appears to be an old age home, discover some bodies just wrapped up in plastic, which kind of freaks them out, and they realize they need to get off the planet. They manage to get to Baltimore and seek out Eric. Eric, if you recall, uh, is the sort of crime lord of Baltimore who had cut a deal with Amos, nay, Timothy, that Timothy had to leave and Eric got to run everything. Basically, Clarissa explains to uh, Eric that if they go to New Hampshire, they would be able to escape Earth with a, you know, just typical random style vacation house suborbital launcher. Uh, Eric resists... (laughs) thinking that he will be fine in Baltimore. But Clarissa tells him a story, uh, and eventually Eric recognizes that things have changed and it is time to go. And I'm not going to lie, my favorite line in this entire episode, and indeed possibly in the entire arc of the series, because I teach global political economy, was UN dollars are a little bit volatile <laughs> right now. <laughs> An understatement, yes. Yes, Uh, which was something Eric said as a response uh, to what was going on. Were you happy to see Amos back? Of course I was happy to see Amos back. I was also happy to see Clarissa back. You know, her meds are apparently flushed out of her system and apparently a blowout somewhere. I don't know... That was how true. that happened. That was true. I, I have to admit, like, you know, there was there was the reptilian part of my brain that was looking at this thing. She looks good now. Yeah, I know. She does look really good. She looks like she maybe got like, got, like uh, did a face mask, yes. you know, like one of those Korean face looked, masks. Yeah. Her hair looked really, really good. And it kind of upset me. Um, <laughs> who, knew, who knew that an apocalypse style event could bring out silky, lustrous hair? I mean, that was that was impressive. It's, she has like highlights and stuff. It's oh. kind of weird. It's like jarring, especially since she did look so bad. Yeah, you know, for the I, first few episodes. I will say, to be fair to the show, not bad is like she looked unhealthy. Yes, I mean, she's a beautiful woman. Yes, no, obviously, so. and it is a credit to the show that indeed one of the conversations that occurs early in this episode is her saying, yeah, you know what? I'm feeling better. I think the blockers are flushed out of my system. I have an appetite. I can taste. I can smell. You know, she didn't quite, you know, do the Julie Andrews across the meadow, but like it, you, you got that sense from her. Someone gave me a blowout. Um, <laughs> uh, there wasn't enough Amos, of course. I did like my favorite thing about about this part of the show that that sort of earth segment was also a subtle little thing which is amos kind of flinches almost when um eric calls him timothy or timmy timmy it was timmy Timmy. it was timmy because i think he's because i think he's embarrassed that clarissa hears it 
Like, well, I, I also find that like there, there is a sort of uh, karmic moment there because after all, you know, Amos has gone through this entire season calling people nicknames. He keeps calling Clarissa Peaches. He, you know, he called that uh, that guy in the prison tiny and whatever. And so my favorite moment was actually in this sequence was Clarissa's little look at at Amos slash Timmy when uh, Eric said the word Timmy. Yeah. Let's leave Earth as many people are trying to do. <laughs> yes. Okay, and we now uh, quickly go to Luna in a section I will describe as shock, awe, and doubt. David Pastor, he of the awkward walking on Luna, is back. He gives a uh, what appears to be a big televised speech, his sort of big Pearl Harbor 9-11, we will strike back speech, in which he praises uh, Christian Avicerala, pointing out, He's going to be relying on her for counsel, orders a manhunt uh, of Marco Anaris and, you know, bringing terrorists. He actually uses the word terrorists uh, to justice. But the cool thing about this scene is that we then get to see what he says after the speech, which is a full awareness on Pastor's part that he has just made a promise and has no idea if he will actually be able to fulfill it. What follows after that is a UN Security Council or National Security Council meeting uh, that covers <laughs> a whole lot of ground. We hear about Marco. Uh, we hear a little bit about the OPA, some questions about Mars, questions about Earth relief. The key question, however, that is debated uh, for several minutes is where, how to hit Marco. Um, and it is safe to say there is a civil military split in the uh, UNSC, which is the military, led by Admiral Delgado, very much wants to uh, attack Palace Station, which we saw earlier in the season and is obviously sort of where Marco was originally from. Delgado thinks it's a proportionate response. Avasarala is more dovish. She does not want to alienate all the Belters. There is a very long debate about essentially how to win the hearts and minds of the Belters or whether that is even possible. This was a super interesting debate that we are going to talk about later on the whether there's any IR segment. But after this uh, scene, Pastor then meets with Delgado privately, asks him to speak his mind. Delgado tells Pastor that Earth, frankly, wants Belter blood. Anna, it would be safe to say that Pastor seems less awkward uh, than he did the last time we see him. Would that be a safe description? I might ask if he got a blowout somewhere, um, <laughs> if he had enough hair for that. He did look better. He has great uh, he hair. Seemed Hold on. To, he, he does have, have great hair. He yeah. seemed to sort of stand taller. His whole body language was different. I did have a couple of thoughts about this. Most of them were IR related, I think, mm -hmm. but... Just superficially, I wondered if Avasarala wrote Pastor's speech. I mean, they don't hmm. say that. No. But there was a part of me that felt like, I don't know, it's kind of possible, or she kind of guided him on it. Like, there was this little bit of like, you did very well, sir. Like, I don't know. No. It seemed like a kind of speech that Avasarala would give. That is true. And I mean, so I... And I will say there was one moment when he's delivering the speech where I'm looking at her and it's almost she like she looks like the mother of like a teen gymnast or yeah. like the coach of a team gymnast where she's like, OK, you can stick the landing. You can stick the landing. But I don't know if she, to be fair, I don't know if she actually wrote it so much as in some ways. Look, this is the argot in which leaders speak. And so yeah. Avasarala alone among almost everyone in that room is very familiar with that. And so it might also be that she recognized beats in that speech and also the the doubt that he was inevitably going to have about whether he was going to carry this out um, as a former leader. I just am wondering, like, how much of this is going to be Avasarala learning to be humble. That's that's the, that's the reason why that occurred to me, because I wonder if she's going to be power behind the throne or if she's 
kind of learn mm-hmm. to be a team player. Well, so the way I would put it is, is what I, there was a natural, you know, the first time we see Pastor Navasarala, you get the impression that Avasarala could eat him for lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get that sense this time. And the question I have is, does Avasarala see herself as... I need to step in because I don't necessarily. In other words, did she just she called the first impression of Pastor, which is this guy is way out of his depth. As you say, does she see herself as a loyal, you know, subordinate playing a role that she has traditionally done well in and therefore, you know, will act will act as a supporting actor rather than a rival power center? All right, we're going to get to all of that in the IR section. Mm-hmm. Take us to space. Yes, <laughs> let's go to space. I guess technically we're in space, but you know, space, space. Space, space. Like, like, yeah, like really like outer, outer space, like the hard vacuum, as it were. Okay, most of the episode happened uh, in space, so we're going to divide it into uh, segments. First, let's start with the Rossi and the Razorback. On the Rossi... Uh, the crew of the Rossi is looking for the proto-molecule after the Zemea has been blown up. They are not finding it. They are tentatively concluding that it has been destroyed. I find that conclusion unsatisfactory. Holden also notes that uh, they will have to assume that any belter ship that they locate uh, is with Inaros. And then at the very end um, of this sequence, they hear what appears to be a distress call from uh, Naomi explicitly calling out James Holden. On the Razorback, uh, Alex and Bobby get the exact same fake Naomi distress message. They respond by saying they are going to head to Intercept. Anna, any thoughts on uh, uh, half of the crew of the Rossi? I will put here something I, I was going to put in um, in uh, Debris Field, which is the little exchange about compadres, <laughs> Alex's favorite bar, where he says, I almost wanted to use it in my quotes for a theme, where he says, not everyone is going to be a compadre. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say... He seems I, his, fe- his feelings are so hurt. I, I, I have to say, it's a small trope this season, but hurt Alex because Bobby keeps, you know, just hurling truth bombs is, is rather amusing. Uh, that is entirely fair. Moving on. Moving on, we go from the Rossi to, I guess, the Free Navy. There is a very quick scene on the Pella in which everyone thinks that Naomi is dead um, and Marco acts like a dick again. I really, he's only, on, he's only on screen for a minute, yet still manages to maximize his dickishness. In which He packs like 60 minutes of dickishness into 60 seconds. Again, props to Keon Alexander because he seems like a really nice guy when he's not playing Marco, but holy crap, the dickishness is off the charts. The point being that um, he sees that Sin is dead. He asks Philip what happened. Philip says that Naomi spaced herself and killing Sin in the process. At which point Marco then makes it very clear that in his mind, uh, Philip is responsible for Sin's death. We then move to Drummer's faction. Uh, It would be safe to say some guilt is emerging uh, among Drummer's faction as they essentially now are picking through belter ships, destroyed belter ships for supplies and weapons and so forth. We learn that some of these factions have not joined the Free Navy. Uh, some of the, the belter factions have not joined them. Uh, we also see Corral. Corral is the uh, the woman that Marco sent over as sort of crew exchange. Emphasize the need for food as well as weapons because of a need to feed the belt, which suggests that maybe there's some trouble in belter paradise. Drummer's crew fights among themselves because they are beginning to feel what I guess I would describe as guilt at uh, the fact that while they are, or maybe it is literally survivor's guilt, recognizing that some belters are dying and they are profiting over their loss. They diffuse it, however, with a lovely scene of silliness. 
Drummer uh, then hears the fake distress message again from Naomi, but Corral uh, says flat out that Naomi is dead, and then trash talks her right in front of Drummer. Drummer gets upset and uh, almost reaches for her weapon to fire. Oksana uh, prevents her from killing Corral, but Drummer is so pissed off by this point that she goes and grabs the bottle that she had intended to give to Ashford that clearly had symbolic value of meaning that it would be uh, for victory, and gets really loaded off of it. Corral and Oksana uh, talk in which Corral again trash talks Naomi, but then they hear uh, the message from Naomi, which we will get to in a little bit, that indicates that maybe something else is going on and that maybe uh, the Naomi is not necessarily dead. Anna, the question I have for you is twofold. First, is this drummer's low point? Because it seems pretty low. And second, and really important from what I can see, when is someone going to punch Corral? <laughs> I'm going to take those in... Uh backwards order um <laughs> crawl takes after marcos uh we need to find the name of the actress because she's also doing an incredible job yes. of just like emanating hostility malice yes and hostility yeah. and also i feel like i raised the question earlier is it really a good idea to have her on this ship like is is maybe she actually kind of a dangerous <laughs> element here and could she sabotage or kill people and i think you get that message like there's a scene of her like is that her caressing drummer's captain's chair yes i assume that's what was going on and i assume that was what we were supposed to infer and also Carl flat out tells oxana yeah you know drummer's the captain so long as drummer obeys marco and the moment that doesn't happen the implication was you know, uh, she will not be captain anymore. Indeed, very well might not be alive. Uh, I, again, you're right. We will need to find the, the name of the actress who plays Corral because, again, this seems like a fun role to play, but, like, she does a very good job of just exuding the notion of believing that everyone else is beneath her. Right. But also, I would say resentment yeah. because she carries a chip on her shoulder because she's a belter. I mean, that's what those exchanges are about is that she she's class conscious I, I believe that's how she would put it you know maybe not use those exact words but she's belter conscious she's um, belter conscious i mean i one, yeah. of the, one i mean to, to her credit one of the things you learn in her conversation with oksana is essentially corral's version of what she thinks naomi did um mm -hmm. which you know is is what we might call retconning i guess but um and i don't think actually really matches with reality which is something we'll talk about a little bit later but nonetheless you at least get a, a sense of why corral is acting the way that yeah. she is acting yeah. So as for the drinking, you know, as the mm. expert here, um, the recovering alcoholic, yeah. I had a few thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, my first thought was, I know that look. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> like when she goes and grabs the bottle and she looks like fucking determined to drink. Mm -hmm. Like I am going to get fucked <laughs> up. I was like. I know you. <laughs> oh, dear. Can I ask you a question? There. Actually, I hadn't thought about Done this. Done that. I, <laughs> I, 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 we, can cut, we can cut this out if you want, but I, I want to ask a question. Can I ask a question? Is that like a triggering thing when you see that in, in fiction? It, it can be. I have been very fortunate um, to not get triggered very much. Okay. Um, it's something that can happen for a lot of people, especially in early sobriety. Um, and that's, that's probably when it happened the most for me. I mean, I've been doing this for a while now mm. 
Um, God willing, I will have 10 years in March, which is hard to believe. Oh, that's great. Um, thank you. You know, um, with the help of the fellowship and my higher power. Uh, it, it depends on, they say in AA, it's, it depends on the nature of your spiritual condition. Hmm. Like how, how sober you are. Hmm. Um, I didn't have it this, I really just did have kind of a funny sort of like, I know what that feels like. Okay. Like I know what it feels like. I mean, other people who aren't alcoholics have probably experienced the same thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is like, I am just, I am out of my mind with grief or terror or pain or fear, and the only thing I know how to do to deal with that is to change my body chemistry in some way, to artificially, you know, smother my emotions, and I'm going to do it in this incredibly methodical way. (laughs) (laughs) And she was methodical about it, let's be, you know. Yeah, and that's something that, like, I do think normal people probably don't do that part Mm -hmm. very often. Like, I don't think drummers an alcoholic. Right, agreed, yeah. It but just that kind of way of looking at drinking. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I thought of, and this maybe is kind of, maybe it's an alcoholic that would think this. I was like, I wonder if you get drunk faster in space. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's a legit question. I don't, you know. Um, and what, what would the, what would it be? Because I think, you know, maybe gravity, how, how much your blood is oxygenated. Yeah. Um, I think you get drunk easier at higher altitudes. Then my guess is you probably get drunk. And, I, you know, I guess the question is, you know, you probably get drunk easier in, on planes as well, right? Isn't that the case? Yeah, that is correct. You do. Yes. Because yes. so, also if you're dehydrated, you get drunker. I mean. So my guess is, yes, it's probably doesn't. It probably takes less alcohol, you know, because I'm thinking that belter ship is not, you know, like uh, super pressurized in terms of oxygen. So, yeah, probably she doesn't have to drink much to get really fucked up. <laughs> And that led me to this whole like a whole like, train of thought thinking about like is there alcohol different? Do maybe they have lower um, ABV alcohol because you get drunk faster? <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Let's okay. move on. Um, Moving on from from uh, the drinking portion of, of our discussion. So Marco looks incredibly broken up when he finds sin, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And he gets all like verklempt about it. Yes. Mm. You don't buy it? Well, here's my thought. Again, Keon Alexander, great. And he gives a layered sort of read of all of this, which makes me think that there's a little bit of it at least, which would be more believable to me than just pure grief, is, fuck, he spoiled my plans. Like, (laughs) I had this thing that I was planning on, and I had all the pieces in place, and it was going to be great. And now this guy had to go and die on me. And it's and it's Naomi's fault. Oh, I so okay. I'm gonna say something, and this is gonna be really controversial. But as a parent, um, I think there was something else going on here, and it, it's awful to say. But there are times where, as a parent, you want to get pissed at your child. You are not happy with your child. They have screwed you up. They've been. They've. They're the one who's foiled your plans. And if you think about it from from Marco's perspective, this all started with Philip's decision to bring Naomi mm-hmm. to the Pella, and you know. When he lashes out at, at Philip, there is no way, shape, or form in which Philip is responsible for the proximate events that actually happened. And it was one of those things where it's like, God, that didn't ring true. But but what I think was is that he I think he was legitimately upset that, that Sin was dead. I mean, they really did go back a long way. But I also thought he has been angry at Philip now for multiple episodes. He resents what Philip did. And I think he was happy that he got an opportunity to be angry at him again. 
I understand what it's like to want to be angry at somebody. I mean, I think yeah. that happens in spouses yeah. and siblings. I mean, it's not just... It happens in families. Yes. that's, a, that's It happens a, in families. That's fair. Right. I, again, this is, again, props to Keanu Alexander. It, I think there's a combination of genuine sadness at, at the passing of a longtime friend, but also I think he wants to be angry. Okay. All right. Moving on. Our next destination? Our le- next and last destination is the Chetsamoka. It is safe to say that Naomi is a little worse for wear from her 30-second journey into space. She manages to regain consciousness. She is clearly suffering from radiation burns, and as well as what appears to be crippling arthritis uh, as a result of having uh, been in space. On the Chetsamoka, she realizes that the ship is essentially bait, as Marco had said, but is also rigged to blow, which means she cannot really control the navigation she can't control thrusters or control communications um she tries to override the automated bait message with her own warning but the first attempt of this does not work because she manages to hear alex's message saying hey we're the razorback we're coming to rescue you and so on and so forth uh the rest of her scenes is dedicated to her trying to macgyver her way out of this which basically includes her having to get into a spacesuit with no oxygen in it um except room whatever she brings in, which basically gives her about 20 seconds of oxygen, as near as I could figure out, going into a vacuumed part of the ship and trying to tamper with the automated message. Essentially, she is able to uh, sort of block out parts of the automated message that make it very clear that rather than... Na- the, the automated message is Naomi saying, I, I need help, I have no control, uh, please get this message to James Holden, she manages to block out parts of the message so that if you listen to it carefully, and I like the way they did this because it really only comes into focus as the credits are rolling, is I am Naomi Nagata, tell James I have control. So, Anna, is this what you meant uh, in the last, uh, in our our last podcast about uh, Naomi's exciting solo adventure? Yes, it is. And I think there is a lot of attention to detail here that is rewarding to book readers because it just is faithful to the book and doesn't explain it. (laughs) Right. And I should say, by the way, my description of what happened, it it, it lies a lot of Dominique Tipper's acting and a lot of, of, you know, genuinely legitimate effort on her part and the effort of the writers to ground her experience in, in reality. Yeah. Like one of the things that happens that I'm sure some viewers who aren't readers can figure out, but still is an important part of the book because it's part of the suspense is when she's marking how many times she goes into the vacuum. Right before she does that, you see her look at the volume of the ship. So she calculates how much oxygen, because it's not producing oxygen. That's one of the things we know. Mm -hmm. So what she's doing there is she's calculating how much oxygen is available in the non-vacuum part of the ship. Mm -hmm. So every time she goes into the vacuum part of the ship, she's releasing oxygen. And so she's she's limiting the amount of time she has inside the oxygenated part of the ship every time she leaves. So she's doing a lot of math. (laughs) Yes. And 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 that's one... And, and I was going to say, like, you've talked about this before, but, you know, one of the things about Naomi Nagata is that she's an engineer, right? She's mm-hmm. she and, and there are not a lot of scenes of seeing her like tinkering with stuff. And this was in some ways an entire episode. Her entire, you know, sequence is just her tinkering. Yeah. And in the book, you get a little more detail about what her thinking is mm-hmm. and like what she's trying to do. And like, for instance, when she's going into the innards of the ship that are a uh, vacuum, I believe she's interrupting. I I guess I thought it was sort of obvious, but she's interrupting the communications lines, right? Like the power to the communication. Mm -hmm. And 
I mean, sometimes in the book, it's a little more laid out so that it's not as much fun to like at the end, you like when you realize like what she's done with the message. Mm-hmm. But it is incredibly suspenseful. And I found it suspenseful knowing what would happen. Mm-hmm. Although, again, they always kind of twist some things from the book. So could have been a little bit different. Um, I want to point out mm-hmm. that, you know, we have a section of this podcast where we lift quotes from the show. There is maybe 30 minutes of the show where you cannot lift quotes. Yes. No, it, it, I, I will say in some ways, you know, you as a book reader and me as a non-book reader, even I as a non-book reader could identify with the fact that this in some ways was probably the the scenes where, you know, it, they are much easier to do in a, uh, on the page than it is to shoot them. I mean, mm-hmm. I think – and Dominique Tipper even said this in the, in the sort of post – uh, episode discussion where she said she can't bounce off anyone in this in mm-hmm. in these sequences. She she's only it's just her. There's, she can't react to anything necessarily, and that's that's difficult for actors. I, I did. I have a minor critique. Okay, go ahead. Which is as you know, a person who spends a fair amount of time alone. You know, <laughs> like um, you know, even before the pandemic, uh, I I work from home. You know, I'm an only child. Setting this up to say, I have noticed about myself that when I am grieving by myself, I tend not to make a lot of noise. Mm. Like, I think it's a weird adjustment that maybe I'm alone in this, but I think we tend to not express as much vocally unless we're really in distress, Mm -hmm. which I want to get to with drummer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's not like you're silent, but she does so much. I mean, and this is, I, I think she had to do this. It's just, I noticed it where mm-hmm. she's like, uh, mm, uh, mm, you know, like there's a lot of like grunting and um, screaming and whatnot. And and also it may be something that that is actually something that is in Naomi's emotional repertoire. Yes, I would. So. Okay, I will. I will defend. I will partially defend this in in two ways. First, I certainly thought it was entirely believable in the first part of this that she would be grunting a lot because, after all, yeah. she's suffering. Oh yeah, from it just radiation. got to be a little bit much. That's my sort of like yeah. thing. It's like, okay, come on, you know, you're grunting. Yeah, okay. and, and but also, I suspect for Naomi, you know, this is an unusual situation for her, and it ties back into what Corral said about her, which is she has usually always been able to game her way out of stuff or to, you know, to to smart her way out of things. And this was a particularly naughty problem, and she had very limited abilities. So I would understand if she got frustrated. That said, the one thing I agree with you on is that you would have I would have expected her to be more quiet if for no other reason that she has limited oxygen. And that is a You know no- what? That's a good point too. And, that is and, and she thing, would yeah. know that. Yes. She would know that she's like wasting oxygen right. if she like hyperventilates or whatever. Yeah. Another nitpick is, so what's the deal with gravity on the Chesmoka? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. She just seems to have full 1G. She's not wearing mag boots because they do this thing in the show, which I actually love and appreciate it, which they almost always put the mag boot sound in Mm -hmm. the show. Mm -hmm. Like you are always aware they're wearing mag boots. It's just a background sound in the show. She didn't appear to have those on. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, where would the gravity be coming from? So the Chetsamoka is engaging in a burn. Was there low G as a result of that? Or, but that maybe. Seems, that's, 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 it seems like something they would have thought through. So maybe, I, maybe I'm not like, you know, I, 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 I am nitpicking. I also want to um, point out that one of the joys of watching the show with the um, closed captions on is you get to see how they describe the music mm. <laughs> when it's on. That's true. 
And in this uh, series of scenes, there was a caption that said, resolute music. (laughs) (laughs) So resolute music was playing. Definitely get that. I have some thoughts and hints about how this is going to play out. But again, I still found it suspenseful. So props. Mm -hmm. Oh, and one more thing, which is that in Stephen Strait's graduate seminar in space acting (laughs) after the show... Dominique Tipper does use the word MacGyver, which made me laugh because she does it in the voice of Naomi. She was like, so Naomi's thinking to herself, I will MacGyver my way out of the situation. And I had the thought it would be so cool if that was still like a term, you know, three centuries from now. (laughs) That's a good point. So this is where I confess my cultural preferences, which is I've never seen a single episode of MacGyver. My I know. But my favorite thing. Did you ever watch the A-team? Yeah. Yeah. The A-Team is a similar thing, right? In the A-Team, yeah. they were always locked in some, you know, warehouse with acetylene torches and, and like, varieties of raw materials, and they would find, like, build some contraption. Make a tank. Yes, exactly. I yeah. lo- That was always my favorite part of the A-Team, and, like, that was... So I kept thinking, as I was watching this, oh, she's A-Teaming her way out of this, but I, I grant you, MacGyvering probably works just as well. All right. We are done with our tour of the universe, mm-hmm. correct? Yes. Dan? So I have one question for you, which is... Yes. Dan, is there IR in this episode? Anna, there was so much IR. <laughs> <laughs> there were at least three different things about IR. And and almost all of the IR uh, comes in particular from the, the Luna sequence. The, the most obvious sort of IR component, uh, international relations component, is the debate in the Luna Security Council about Belter sympathies. And it would be safe to say this evokes just about every debate about every war involving the United States uh, with military intervention over the last 30 years, 40 or 50. You can go back to Vietnam. I think that works. It, it's all basically about if you decide to attack the actor that is hostile to you, do you lose or win the hearts and minds of uh, the population? And does that matter? Um, Especially if you know that the population has not specifically taken a side in this. Exactly. If you know that the leadership is acting out of its own selfish reasons or uh, an ideology that isn't necessarily shared with the rest of the population. And furthermore, this is not just about war. It's also about sanctions. Um, This is true in the case of when the U.S. employs sanctions everywhere, because the question is always, if you impose sanctions on a country because you're trying to punish the regime, will the population rally around the flag and, and decide that they support their own guy, or will they help to potentially overthrow them or engage so, in so, civil disobedience? Dan, historically, yeah. how does that usually work out? <laughs> usually it works out that they rally around the flag. Um, unless <laughs> there is... But but I will say this. There is, there, is a, uh, there is an exception, which is in instances in which there is a genuinely organized civil society that is in opposition to the leadership and actually does call for sanctions, think South Africa, for example, um, then actually sanctions can can have some effect. The one time we did good sanctions. Right. <laughs> there are other times, but yes, yes, I, I grant you that. Um, well, the one time it was like the moral, like the moral center of that yeah. debate was like pretty firmly, like no one was really arguing except for the terrible <laughs> right. I think white supremacists, like there was very few people arguing Pro South Africa, right? You know, so, and anyway, and and more generally, it would be safe to say that if you were dealing with an actor like the Free Navy or the Belt, it would be highly unlikely that sanctions would work in any way whatsoever, or these kinds of uh, attacks, because they will only work it to the extent that they actually materially 
weaken the free navy. They would not yeah. work in terms of generating sympathy or generating dissatisfaction with the free navy for what's happened. And Dan, I almost found that discussion unrealistic. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that we're a pretty bloodthirsty people, especially, you know, Americans have, have definitely done this kind of shit, like what I would say disproportionate response. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it was like thrown around so cavalierly, like I was like, really, like you would just nuke like a planet or an asteroid, I guess, whatever station. Yeah. Knowing mm-hmm. that most of the people on it aren't sympathetic. So I would say two things in response to this. The first is you and I are old enough to remember the way people thought immediately after the 9-11 attacks. And it's worth pointing out that that this is, you know, they are responding to what is literally an extinction-level event on Earth. When Delgado says that that Earth wants Belter blood, I don't think he's lying about that. I mean, he might that might be his own interpretation. But I, I think the immediate post-9-11 mindset, you have to get back into that. And so, yeah. no, I entirely believe that there would be a debate about whether or not we should destroy uh, a station. Because... You know that, it, and it's a different. You're correct. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I revise and extend. Yeah, my remarks. So I, I, I think it's weird that I feel like it's a little weird that I forgot that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like the the calling for blood stuff. I don't know. There is something about it that I mean. I guess it bothered me because it bothers me when it happens in real life. Right. So, but also, I mean, I think. But the other thing that's going on here, to be fair, is I think there's legitimate frustration on the. The part of Earth, and I think Pastor encapsulates this perfectly when he says at one point, "You know, we just seem to be waiting to react to Marco. We need to do something. We need to take action." Um, and this is a common, you know, response. In, in is in that IR like the need to like respond in some way for in order to have your um, populace not sink into despair. Yeah, basically. I mean, I think there's a couple of things here. First, first, in terms of domestic politics, as a leader, you need to be seen to responding to the crisis, not just in the form of humanitarian relief, obviously, but also presumably to try to deter against future attacks. This is an example in which, you know, the, the fact that Marco launched this attack in the first place shows that defense does not work. You need to potentially attack as well. But also, you know, Earth is wounded right now. And, and if you... You know, if you're Earth and you're concerned about all the threats out there, you potentially want to make it clear that, you know, an attack on you will lead to devastating consequences because Marco is not the only threat out there, which actually leads to the next IR point I would talk about, which is essentially the the sort of prioritization of threats and time. One of my colleagues, uh, David Edelstein, who's a professor at Georgetown, wrote a great book about uh, power and time, basically arguing that one of the problems that, that great powers have is that they get distracted by short-term threats, and as a result, neglect uh, the more serious long-term threats on the horizon. The book is called, I believe, Over the Horizon, of Memory Serves. And the point that the example that David gave is uh, the United States being obsessed with al-Qaeda while China is sort of slowly rising, and therefore focusing much more on the global war on terror during the first decade of this century rather than China's <laughs> rise. And I, You know what I would say is a good example, Dan? Yeah. It mm-hmm. would be the U.S. focusing on nation states in general rather than uh, global climate change. Touche, Anna, touche. Um, but the yeah. point is, is that I, I, that book came to mind as I was listening to this Security Council debate because essentially 
they bring up Mars very briefly. They say what's going on in terms of, you know, does Mars have any intel? Avasarala points out very clearly that uh, Mars is compromised. And I don't think anyone is really quite thinking this through, that, that while absolutely, you know, you want to retaliate against Marco, among other things, we know that, for example, the Watchtowers have moved away from paying attention to stealth tech from Mars and instead is trying to focus on asteroids. And that was the right move at that moment, but I am beginning to think that that is no longer the right move. That, in fact, Earth is so obsessed now with dealing with Marco for justifiable reasons that uh, Mars is that sort of, you know, bigger threat in the background, and we have not heard anything about them for quite some time. And I am therefore worried that uh, Earth is focusing more on the proximate threat rather than on the more serious threat. And I would say that that is not just short-term thinking, but also... Um, losing some view of how did we get where we are, which is to say, right. where did Marco get this technology? Right. And which we is, need we- to focus on where it came from. How was he able to pull this off? Right. This echoes 9-11 too, right? Mm-hmm. Like there was a whole lot more attention paid to let's bomb the fuck out of these people than how did we get here? How were they able to pull this off? Like we did get the 9-11 commission and stuff, but- yeah. In the moment, I mean, understandably, it's a little hard to look at that. But I think if you're going to be strategic in your response, that should be part of your thinking. Right. And again, I say this as someone watching a show rather than I remember everyone's thoughts during immediately after 9-11. This is an understandable impulse. And it is not to say that it's necessarily inexcusable. It's completely understandable. But the very fact that, that it is now common knowledge that Mars clearly has been selling tech to Marco should prompt a much greater and more intense discussion about what to do about Mars. And we're not seeing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a little disturbing. The last uh, IR element um, is just a small little thing, which is, but it's basically what we call the use of analogical reasoning. Yun Feng Kong wrote a great uh, book called Analogies at War, in which generally when leaders are facing uh, new crises, what they inevitably try to do is compare them to old crises. Psychologists often refer to this as the availability heuristic. Um, And we literally see this play out because Delgado um, in terms of talking about striking Palestine, Station, compares it to when Avasarala destroyed Deimos. And what was interesting about this is that Avasarala does not buy into that analogy, indeed explicitly pushes back on it by saying, no, these are two different things. Palestine Station has a lot of civilians on it. Deimos was a military-only target. And so that is interesting, first of all, because this is the first time we see Avasarala and Delgado not on the same page, but also Avasarala... Oh, no, they've been not on the same page before when he refused to carry out her, like, I guess it was not an order, but a favor. Right, but that was different. Like she, that, how would I put this? That's different. They agreed on what the threat was. It was just Delgado didn't want to risk his mm. career. But you're, I mean, you're right in this, that sense. This is where they have substantive disagreements about policy rather mm. than sort of bureaucratic politics stuff. Um, and, and that's what I meant by there being the sort of uh, separation there. But also by puncturing the analogy, in some ways, Avasaral is able to diffuse or at least deflect that decision for some time, I'm assuming. Are we done with IR? Yes, there was a lot of IR, but I think we are now safely done with it. Okay. So now that we're done with IR, we can move on to the more literary part of our discussion, <laughs> which is themes and quotes. Yes, uh, I get the, the the first theme, and the theme that struck me throughout this episode was what I would describe as the lies we tell others and the lies we tell ourselves. I figured this was just the churn again, but it's gone, isn't it? Starting over isn't always bad. This is the beginning of the reckoning. 
the first step towards justice, and this journey will not end until we are victorious. The future of this planet, the future of humanity demands it. Now we just have to make good on what I said. Naomi stopped believing in what we were fighting for. We were family then. We needed her. And she turned her back on us and left. So, again, what struck me in this episode was the the fact that you see a variety of characters simultaneously sort of puff their chests out and sort of try to convince others of of useful lies, for lack of a way of putting it. By lies we tell others, what I was primarily referring to was David Pastor's speech, but the idea that we we tell others what we think we want them to hear in no small part because that is the way in which we can motivate action. I mean, there are some times where what we might call a lie is actually either a myth or a narrative or something to rouse people. And one of the things I liked about this episode was the fact that Pastor knew that he was making a bold claim and then realized, oh, no, I'm going to have to actually act on it. But in some ways, the, the more interesting part about this was the lies that we tell ourselves. And we see this, I think, most clearly in the conversation between Eric and Clarissa, um, in which Eric originally says, I'm not leaving this place. I'm going to be king of Baltimore. It doesn't matter that it's just been flooded. You know, do you see all these resources? And Clarissa tells this aching story of uh, a fellow in- inmate who essentially sustains a lie about the fact that she didn't kill her children. And that seems to actually reach Eric. And Eric then acknowledges the truth. But in some ways, with a lot of these characters, the reason that they act the way they do is because they have cultivated narratives about themselves that maybe have some grain of truth, but certainly do not have anywhere remotely enough truth. Name Damus. And I think that, you know, his character arc from the beginning to now has always been about him recovering a truth about himself, like figuring out who he really is. Mm -hmm. Because he, yeah, he tells a story about himself to himself all the time, right? And he borrows other people's stories. Mm -hmm. And... I yeah I, I I like that I like that theme a lot and I just think we can also see it in him even though that's not part of this episode and the other thing I guess the only other thing I would say is that there are ways in which and this is the the Clarissa line about starting over not always being bad is the question of when you do recognize honesty or when you recognize you have to walk away from that lie you know sometimes good things can can happen as a result uh, of it so we will see whether or not this is the beginning of the reckoning for Errol the characters or not uh, anna i believe you have a theme i have a theme okay and my theme is rather succinct it is devolution Ooh. it is moving backwards this is what the world's going to be like now we're not salvagers we're scavengers my job isn't to assess morality this is simply what we need to do I'm not sure I can. So first of all, I'm going to admit that I wanted to include um, both your quote, which is starting over isn't always bad, although that's sort of (laughs) a positive spin on my idea of devolution. And then I also was very tempted to include some of Naomi's grunting. (laughs) (laughs) That is truly primal acting. In this episode, we see people backsliding. We see Mm -hmm. people going back to old behaviors that didn't work for them before. Clarissa has a comment about the world in general. Is this what the world's going to be like now, right? 
yeah. you know, drummer saying like, you know, well, we're not, we're not salvagers. We're not doing anything constructive here. And then mm-hmm. the Delgado quote, I actually, I mean, has a little to do with IR, I guess, but also um, to me is, is an example of moral backsliding, perhaps the idea that it's not his job to decide morality. I honest to God thought that is part of what the military does. <laughs> like To be very clear, like, I think that is actually part of what the military's <laughs> job is. And I would think that if you ask the military, they also think that's what I mean, their job sometimes is. They, they don't always they don't always adhere to it. I'm gonna grant you that. And their logic about what moral training. is sometimes yeah. differs from other peoples and civilians. But yeah, I mean the whole like you're not no, supposed as, to obey as, an immoral order, I believe is part of the Yes whole whole military that is definitely thing. part of it there is at least in the united <laughs> states military there is a very extensive structure of what we call pme professional military education and ethics are part of it yeah um so so this so is no, just I, I mean I, this is an understandable situation of going back like also as eric says i thought this was the churn this is things like going backwards um in time going backwards in states of being drummer kind of going to a pure emotional state, Naomi being in a place of like not even kind of being able to talk, not even be able to, you know, articulate things. Um, mm-hmm. This is something I think we see occasionally in the Expanse, you know, storylines um, throughout the seasons. I, I will also say, so, you know, we both, uh, we both noticed the drummer line, the we're not salvager, salvagers, we're scavengers. And it, it's said by drummer in a very bitter way, and the reason I wanted to talk about it is that I'm not sure they were ever, I mean, they were salvagers, but they were still scavengers when they were on their own. I mean, we even saw an episode in which they were essentially scavengers because a UN ship had been destroyed by them, um, or at least incapacitated by them. So the idea that they're, this goes in some ways with this, with the lies we often tell ourselves, which is when something go gets even worse, we often like to pretend that, oh, well, back in the day, it wasn't that bad. Or back in the day, there was some golden age when we actually did this really well. When in fact, no, it was there. There were always. Problems. I think there is a shift, though. I mean, yeah, maybe yeah. they were always yeah. scavengers, but to be doing it for Marco, and to be specifically tasked with scavenging, and right. also actually, you know what, they were salvagers because if you'll recall, one of the things they mm-hmm. did with the ships that they got was make them usable. They were li- they were true. actually literally literally salvaging ships. I would say. Okay, I'm going to push back on this in one way. I think the difference is not so much whether they were salvagers versus scavengers, but rather what was the object. Okay. In yep. other words, they saw themselves as salvagers when they were tacking inners. They're now scavengers because it's belters who are hurt. And you know what? I got a problem with that. That is not actually the way it's supposed to go. Okay, then. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Right. No, but this show is this show is normally has sympathy with the belters, and I certainly understand that. I'm just going to point out that it's n- the distinction between scavengers and salvagers should not be whether you were attacking inners or belters. Okay, that is a that is a a good um, equitable way of looking at the world. So I, I applaud that. I am going to refrain from judgment on that particular idea because okay. i think that Fair. there's some systemic oppression that makes things a little different but by my saying that i've given you my opinion hey fair enough let us move into the debris field is there anything yes. you'd like to just throw out there dan that we haven't said yet 
So I think a few things. Um, first of all, I, I like this is nothing unique to The Expanse. It's a more general television phenomenon. I like that Sin got into one more episode, even though he's dead. We often see this when characters leave a, a show that, you know, you, you see them die and you're like, oh, I'm never going to see them again. Of course, you then see them in the next episode when they're lying in state or, you know, lying in a funeral or so on and so forth. The actor who played Sin is Brent Sexton. I just want to give him props because he had a nice arc this season and I thought he did a good job with a, a small part, which is, again, something The Expanse is really good at in terms of their casting. Mm -hmm. I Sometimes that is called fan service when you bring back somebody mm -hmm. from the dead, so to speak. Yes. Um, and I hope he got paid. Yes, exactly. Well, that was the other thing. I always think, oh, I hope he got a check for this yeah. one. Yes, exactly. First of all, in terms of like, you know, as a book reader, I will ask you, I want the Mars shoe to drop. I'm getting a little annoyed with this now. You know, it's been multiple episodes since it's now common knowledge that Mars is helping uh, or at least a faction of Mars is helping Marco. It would be nice to know what the hell Mars is doing about all this. Like, are there elements in the Martian government that are not happy about this? Uh, what's going on there? Similarly, when are we going to head back to the ring? We saw this talked about in the Earth Security Council meeting. Like, who's running Medina Station? Is it still the OPA? Uh, what else is going on there? These are questions that get to enormous arcs from the book. Yes. Like, just really can... big stuff. And so... I would understand if that is going to be played out in further seasons because it's such a huge chunk of narrative. I mean, they might right, and it, they might figure out ways to parcel it out and to do parts of it in this season. But like, there's a whole book about Medina Station. There's a whole book that's like uh, about what okay. happens in Medina Station. And then I don't think I'm giving anything away. Maybe I'm giving something slightly away, but I'm okay with it, which is that the the planets outside of the ring or past the ring like become mm -hmm. also the places where, okay. where, where we're going to get large amounts of plot. Right. And that's fair. And I will, I will also add that in some ways, I, it, one of the things that one of my takeaways from this episode is my God, they're, they're going to a lot of places. Like almost every place that we were concerned about is jammed into this episode. So I re in some ways I'm, I know that I'm carping about this, but they have a lot of plot they're dealing with. So it, it's fair. Anna? I would like to um, revisit Stephen Strait's graduate seminar in space acting. <laughs> yes, and this is in the, uh, the the this is one of the bonus uh, features. It, you know, when you watch this on Prime, you there's like little five minute discussions. And Go ahead. They're led by Stephen Strait wearing horn rimmed glasses. Yeah. Um, he is not wearing a shawl collar sweater as he does in other spaces, um, <laughs> but he might as well be wearing a shawl collar sweater. I would say. Our friend yes. that knows Steven insists that he is incredibly good, sweet, nice, down-to-earth guy. And I believe that. I believe mm -hmm. that because I, I get the sense that Steven Strait is kind of putting on a persona almost, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, when he does these little graduate seminar things. They're like pretty self-serious. And I don't know yes. if he realizes how self-serious they are, but I could see how, I know a lot of actors are really shy. And so you'd want to like play somebody you can't actually right. be truly yourself anyway mm -hmm. he says something that i laughed at which is that in this episode we see holden's evolution as a leader and i was like mm. Mm -hmm. okay so really I, 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 do I, we I, here's the way i would put this and i, I will so I'll, I'll 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 offer a modest defense of this description which is partially this is just because the crew is different yeah right when it's the traditional rossi crew I mean, Holden is recognized as the captain, but it's a it's an organic unit. Mm -hmm. They've all evolved over time, you know, and that's how it can work. Whereas with this new crew, 
Holden's the only one who's been with the Rossi for any kind of period. So it's like the underlings treat him like the captain. And so in some ways, that's the role that he has to play. Um, but that said, yeah, you're right. Like, I'm not sure Bull is necessarily going to follow every order he gives. I, I and think, I'm not sure what Monica is in the chain of I command. think Holden is evolving. And I think he yeah. is experiencing sort of um, new... Also, he's still in the lacrosse suit. Yeah, wearing like... he He's still experiencing sort of new parts of his character and i i think he he does change as a leader and i do think he gets better as a leader i'm just not sure that this episode is the place that we're seeing that i think what we're seeing yeah. in this season is m- similar to what we see in Avasarello, which is i think he's learning some humility like hmm. holden has always had this weird kind of like i wouldn't call it fake humility but he, you know, he is brash and he believes that he is in the right a lot of the time. You know, yeah. he will do things because it's the right thing to do and kind of like, you know, screw the consequences. And we are definitely seeing him acknowledge that that's not necessarily the best way to be in the world. That you can have a moral center and act on moral um, principles, but not necessarily go off half cocked. Right. I also think it's safe to say we're seeing that he he's an uncertain ground. I mean, and I, and this ties into actually, I think, the, the previous episode where he acknowledges that he didn't quite he never trusted Fred and that maybe he should have trusted Fred, mm-hmm. that he, he recognizes that that, you know, he got the read wrong. And, you know, I think that's in some ways what we're seeing throughout this entire episode, the entire season with Holden, because Essentially, what he's recognizing is that some of the things that he took for granted or had assumed about the way the world works is not actually the way the world works. And so he's not reacting to that by doubling down on those beliefs, yeah. which is a good quality in a leader. Yeah. Um, he's reacting to that by recognizing there's uncertainty. And that's fair. Just a couple more things. One, yes. not enough of our friend Anna Hopkins. We, yes, we literally see her just glance at her. Mm-hmm. So no, Anna, that we missed you. And then uh, I already mentioned it's a weirdly, uh, you know, silent episode, although not silent, a lot of grunting, just not words. And then we both were struck by the opening scene. The the strange cold open. (laughs) Oh, oh God, that's awful. That is really it's a warm open in some ways. In some ways. It depends on what end you're talking about. (laughs) Where in the body. So what Anna and I are both talking about is that like the literally the almost the first scene of the entire episode. It is the the opening episode. Is a shot of Amos and uh, Clarissa just peeing out in the open. I yeah, I like you know, I look at that and it's like, really? Is that where you're going to do that? I mean, that's a choice, as they say. Yeah. You know, that's a choice. And so it but has to be... what is it be, saying with it, the choice? Right. It has to be a deliberate thing to do. Like, I'm not sure if it's like an inside joke, maybe. I, I mean, it does communicate something about the characters if we want to give them some credit, which is to say they're incredibly comfortable with each other. Yes, that's And true. I also think it would communicate they are not in a romantic relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and they do not have romantic feelings for each other because I don't know about you. And it's been a long time since I simply dated someone or that I was or went camping with someone that I was dating. I think if I was like wanting to have a romance with somebody, this is something that I would keep to myself. <laughs> there is a, so, so whenever this conversation comes up, I always think of a short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne called The Minister's Seventh Veil. Yeah. 
Yes, that's where my mind goes. No, but I, I would read this in high school. It's uh, called The Minister's Seventh Veil. It's about a minister who um, goes on a trip and for some reason comes back and wears a veil for the rest of his life, basically. And even his wife doesn't get to see the last version of it. And, and his basic point was is that there's some things that should remain secret. I think one of the things that should remain secret <laughs> between romantic couples is you should not have to walk in on them in the bathroom unless there is an absolute emergency I, going I, on. So, yes. Yes. I agree with completely. You and so, I mean, that could be one thing that's being communicated. It could be just some kind of weird inside joke. It could be also something that they're saying to us about their dedication to realism. I mean, a lot of shows mm. just don't show people going to the... <laughs> That's true. This don't. is always this is the only this is show. The com- this is the first time. Well, that's the first time I've ever seen it. I think in there's some scene that's like I want to say when Harry met Sally, or it's a it's a romance. It's like a '90s romance where one of it's communicated that the husband and wife are kind of maybe it's so it wasn't when Harry met Sally. It's some other movie where it, the way it's communicated that the husband is feeling like maybe there's the romance is gone is that the wife just mm-hmm. openly talks to him while sitting on the toilet. So also like I, I always think about this made me think of like Star Trek and Star Trek the Next Generation, which is there's always questions in those shows mm-hmm. like when are they going to show the tur- the turbo flush or the toilet or what have you? And, and like indeed, like even in, in particularly Next Generation, you occasionally see a sink and it's like, oh, that's exciting. <laughs> nope, they're just going for straight peeing in this just, one. So, well, yeah. it's on Earth, so it's not very exciting. It's not very like high tech. So we've reached the end. <laughs> we have. <laughs> Uh, I think we've flushed through everything we can possibly I believe we've said everything we can possibly say, at least for now. I want to thank Karen Qualley and Liam McMahon, who are the people that actually do the work on this show. We basically have fun. They work. Uh, And I want to thank our amazing 65 at Last Count patrons who are giving us money to do this thing. And I will, again, promise we are dedicated to keeping the show almost entirely free for everyone. Although... If you join now, if you become a patron now, we are doing a patrons-only episode once we get 100 patrons, and we'll let the patrons vote on what the discussion topic Mm -hmm. will be, although I think we might have some guidelines, because if they're like, do Battlestar Galactica all five seasons, like, I don't, that's not going to happen. No, that's not happening. You can go to patreon.com slash space the nation to do that. You can also just listen, and maybe you can follow the show on Twitter at uh, underscore space the nation we are both on twitter as well i am at dan dresner we are both very on twitter dan and we are like <laughs> just extremely on twitter <laughs> but yes, <that's> true. <laughs> and you can follow me at anna marie cox until next time dan keep this channel open for more